Mooney, thank you. Um, we have some folks who are out today, and if you will, as you look around today and as you greet one another, those that you uh, find that you miss, if you will, contact them this week and uh, seek to encourage them. Uh, Tom, Miranda, it's really, really good to have y'all back. Um, I'm just, uh, when you came yesterday and uh, uh, just, it was just a sweet time to to be able to touch you and hug you with all that you've been through. And I know that wasn't all bad, but uh, I know that it was difficult. Uh, your family, and uh, we missed you, and glad you're back with us, and the Lord's brought you back. David and Janie, good to have you all today. Uh, my goodness, uh, love you all. For those of you who may not know David and Janie, meeting them today, they uh, went out with us and uh, helped us get started, and uh, we're grateful to them. And uh, for uh, for all that you did in serving us and encouraging us and all that you still do. Uh, we love you and appreciate you. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to uh, the book of Nehemiah today. Uh, Booney, thank you for uh, the prayer for our, our leaders. I was reminded this week that... Uh, uh, didn't seem like a lot of big things were happening, but there are always big things that are happening. And places of service from a, a mayor to a city council person, uh, all of those are important. Uh, they serve us and they uh, make contributions here in our local community and, um, and we're grateful for them. We need to be, uh, we need to be mindful of them. Uh, we have some personal relationships with some of the leaders and why we didn't? Uh, why we didn't? He referred to our local sheriff, but uh, we uh, we have personal relationships with the sheriff of New Hanover and Pender County, and are grateful for them and love them and know that they love Christ. And it's uh, uh, it's uh, that uh, that says a lot and helps us even if even as we look to them uh, for leadership, and we have a we have a trust in them, and uh, we're grateful for them. Um, we are going to begin Nehemiah today. As you remember, uh, we finished up Ezra last week. Um, just even our confession and assurance of pardon this morning uh, came from a reflection on last week uh, that with uh, Ezra's preaching for four months, the people came under great conviction. Uh, the Word of God uh, does make a difference. And we're going to we're going to look at that even today in our text um, and refer to that just because of God's goodness in His Word. So um, I was uh, this past week uh, talking to Lori. Uh, we were discussing our, our children's discipleship and youth discipleship ministry. And I just, um, and this, was, this wasn't to, to build her up or any of you who were serving, uh, but we are committed to uh, the process of discipleship, of opening up God's Word, reading it, and explaining it uh, every time we meet. And we are committed to that with our children. Uh, we're committed to that with our adults. And even though we are concluding our, um, our study of Philippians uh, for the men tomorrow morning at 6 and for the ladies tomorrow evening at 6.30, 
um, just because it is the last one. If you have not attended, we want to encourage you to come because that's what we do. We open up God's Word, we read it, seek to explain it, and we trust in the Holy Spirit to uh, speak to our hearts and show us places for personal and corporate application. Uh, and we're, we're grateful for that. And uh, we're grateful to God for His Word uh, and for His Spirit. It'll seem like we're making a slight shift today as we turn our attention to uh, this book, which is the one that follows Ezra. We said along the way that uh, it is believed that Ezra wrote both. Some would argue that Nehemiah wrote Nehemiah. I, I don't know right now if that's important for us to try to figure out. It's, God has given it to us. But what is interesting is that for the most of history, uh, the two have always been together. Uh, in fact, it wasn't until the 15th century uh, that even in the Hebrew text that they were divided. They had always been, uh, they'd always been one book. And, um, and it was uh, early in the 4th century that began to see a difference and made the distinction uh, in, the, in the Latin Vulgate. Uh, but as we work through Nehemiah, I, I want to remind you of a couple of things that we've already referenced, but I, but I, wanna, we, I just want to make this comment again. Um, and we're going to be dealing with Nehemiah this week in the next two weeks. And that is, is that Nehemiah just kind of continues the final glimpse of the history of God's people, but not just the history of the people, the history of the work of God before there is a period of silence until we get to John the Baptist. Remember, we're in the last 100, 100, right now we're probably in, as far as historically with Nehemiah, you're in less than the last 100 years before uh, silence comes and then we pick back up when John the Baptist comes. Uh, but we're looking at God's mercy uh, in, uh, in bringing the exiles back to Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, at the time of Nehemiah, it had been about 140 years since uh, Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem. So about 140 years have passed, and that'll give you some idea of what's going on. And, and Nehemiah, prayerfully, and, and with wisdom that God gave him, he did, does in fact lead a third group of exiles back uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, and we know that he goes and undertakes a building project of building the walls of Jerusalem. And I hope today we'll see this uh, a bit different, and the reason why is because I really believe that it is there for help us understand what it is that we have been called to do and our responsibilities as it applies to us building the church, building the church, not building walls. We were here yesterday painting walls, and we had other projects that we wanted to work on, uh, and all of those things were important, and for all those of you who came and those of you who supported in other ways, I just bless the Lord for you. Um, it is really good to be at a place that we can, we can call, call our own in that sense and to steward it and seek to steward it well. But, but, but beyond walls, um, and, and, and Nehemiah's emphasis, while it seemed to be building a wall, in, in much the same way we may build a building, uh, Nehemiah is no different than Ezra in that he went back with a heart and concern for the people to see the God's covenant people built and strengthened and encouraged. Uh, and in essence, that's exactly what we do as a church. That is our calling, to see 
the covenant people of God, strengthened, encouraged, and established. That is our work. So even when we're putting paint on walls and we're putting pine straw out to, to, to take care of and to keep a building together, um, whatever it is, needs to be ultimately our end is to see the covenant people of God encouraged to see them strengthened and to see them make it through to the end. And we say that a lot. But for those of us now who have really begun to understand what it is to have relationships in the body of Christ, to the end that we care about one another's well-being spiritually, physically, and otherwise, then we come to understand that that is what is most significant in the life and the work of the church. And then outside of that, flowing out of that, if that's not right, then that which takes place outside will either not take place or will not be right in and of itself. But when outside of that, then we go and we fulfill the great commission. That is, we proclaim the message of the gospel. Why? Because we have an interest in the things of God. And that interest in the things of God will run congruent with an interest in the people of God. I want you to hold that. Because I believe that we'll see some of that even today. Now, now Nehemiah, as great a leader as he is, and we're not going to talk much about his leadership. But as great a leader as he was, he had weaknesses. In fact, when we get to the end of Nehemiah, it's not a, it, it doesn't, again, it doesn't end with everything being good and right. He had weaknesses, he had challenges, but he seeks in the course of his life, by the grace of God in his life, he seeks to, uh, to, 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 to take care of God's people. He goes to a ruined city in the midst of hateful enemies, and the enemies are going to be hateful. And in the midst of sin from within, and he seeks to do what God has called him to do in helping the people, the covenant people of God. This is where we relate to these historical events. The church exists in the midst of a ruined world. Hateful enemies and sin that is always threatening us from outside and from within. Pointing back to dealing with our confession this morning, I hope you understand that that is not just something that we write down so that it looks good on paper or so that we have some kind of a way to work through a course of our service with some liturgy. We are specific each week. And I know we get, I know there are times that we may think, are we just so generalizing sin that we lose, that we lose the emphasis of what it means to confess sin? And that certainly isn't the intent. The intent each week is not to make us feel bad about who we are, any worse than God intends for us to feel, but to deal rightly with the understanding that sin is here. It's here. Right here. It's here. And it has to be dealt with. And the only way to deal with it, the only way that it can be dealt with redemptively, the only way that it can be dealt with rightly is to get before God 
and confess as we did this morning and then receive his forgiveness and in receiving his forgiveness look to him and the magnitude of his grace as we gave consideration to last week. Yeah, that's the kind of world that we live in. A ruined world. Hateful enemies and sin that is always threatening us. I don't believe, though, the prospects of the church are bleak. I don't, I don't believe the prospects of the church are bleak. Because we look in Scripture and we know that at the end of the day, Christ does. He is winning and He wins and the church makes it through to the end. But I do believe that we have to admit this. And this is not to cast a jaundiced eye on any particular group. I just want us to be aware of what, what I'm about to say and the truth. And that is that much of what we see being characterized as the church doesn't resemble the church at all. It really doesn't. And the reason why, because most of what is being taught and most of what is being believed and most of the things that are, now, are, 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 are propelling people in the course of this life, doesn't resemble the gospel. And where there is no gospel, there is no church. There may be an institution, there may be an assembly, there may be some modicum of nodding the head to God. But where there is no gospel, there is no church. That's the reason there'll be no salvation apart from the gospel. That's the reason there'll be no forgiveness of sin and an acknowledgement and confession of sin apart from the gospel. There's not a confidence today in the preaching and teaching of Scripture alone. There really isn't. Not a confidence in the preaching of Scripture revealed and empowered by the Spirit of God as being sufficient for our problems and for our neighbor's problems or even for the world. We know that's true, and you know how we know that? It's because when there are problems, the first thing that comes up is some kind of an idea or philosophy or a, a pill or a doctor or something to somehow or another solve the problems that ultimately rest in the sinfulness of the human heart. Scripture is not turned to first. It is not. We don't see the church as necessary for the helping of this ruined world. We don't. If we did, even, even those of us who are here today would find Deeper levels of commitment to the work of the church. And I'm not, I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm just saying, and all of those who would profess Christ would find, a, would find a level of commitment that is even deeper than where they are today. Which is much of the reason why we gather here every week. is so that that commitment will become deeper and deeper and deeper because we will see the church as the one who holds the answer and has been called to proclaim the only message that ultimately will help this ruined world. 
and will help our ruined neighbor and will help our ruined family members. Even family members that, this is true of me today, and I confess, even family members of my own that I would expect to be here today, that I would expect to, to be gathered regardless of, of weather and those kinds of things, to be here to do what? To worship the God that has granted grace and that sustains them looking to Him. By the grace of God at work in Nehemiah, he did what he did. He went to Jerusalem and he stood post to be at work for God's people and with God's people. So I want us to hear today that as we're looking at Nehemiah, those are the things that we want to give consideration to. J.L. Packer said of Nehemiah, he said he wasn't a wall builder, though he did undertake the building of a wall. He said he was a church builder. He was building a spiritual house. He was building up the covenant people of God. And even in the course of his weakness, he was pointing people to an all-powerful, trustworthy God and calling on them Place your trust in Him. Put your trust in Him. Put your trust in Him. And that's what it is to build the body of Christ as we look to each other and encourage one another. In our teaching, glory uh, of the, the, the smallest to the oldest. Um, I'm reminded, Justine, of you and Alina and sitting in there on Wednesday nights uh, with, with two little ones. The conversations that you have, the investment that we're making in the lives of these children to do what? To trust God because He is the only one who is trustworthy. Trust Him. Trust Him with your life. Now, how does God's work get done? That's the question that's before us. How does God's work get done? I want to give you six things. You may want to jot them down for those of you who take notes, and we're going to follow along, and we're going to look at uh, one through six. Broad sweep, be quick, but, but I, want you to, I want you to grab a hold of these six things as they will be important to us over the course of these next weeks. Number one, great needs stir great desires which fuel great works. Great needs stir great desires, which fuel great works. And, and they go in that order. The need to the desire to the work. The second thing is, is that God's work is attended by God first. God's work is attended by God first and then by others who seek Him. So here's how we know that if we are, and this is just for us in our personal uh, connection here. If we are seeking God, we are going to have a heart for His work and we will be about it. It'll go in that order. We will not be about God's work if we're not seeking Him because God attends His work first by virtue that it is His work. 
It's his plan. And then others join who seek him. Three, there is the glory of Christ in his work of bringing people to God. There is the glory of Christ that is displayed in bringing people to God. Okay? So uh, just so we understand that when we're talking about that, we are recognizing that the responsibility and the work of the church is in that, in bringing people to God through the proclamation of the gospel, and in that the glory of Christ is seen and known. Okay, that's where the, the glory of Christ is just magnified. Four, that work is accomplished and done when we come together side by side. In other words, God's work is complete when we come together and we work side by side. Five, this work will only be accomplished when we fear God more than we fear man. It'll only be accomplished when we fear God more than we fear man. I really do believe that the majority of our and the church as a whole, the, the thing that kind of paralyzes us in the way of ministry locally and abroad comes from a fear of man. I, 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 believe, it, I believe it rests there. I, there. There is, in our own selfishness, a desire to want to, to, to serve ourselves. Uh, and then we're going to, that brings us to the last thing is that the work of the church requires personal sacrifice. The work of the church requires personal sacrifice. This is heavy. Let's look at the text. Turn our attention to that. Chapter 1, we're going to hit all six chapters. Do it quickly. We'll read it all, but we'll point you to these things and then point back to these things which will serve us for the next two weeks as we look through the rest of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1, verse 1, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. 
We've acted very corruptly against you, and I have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven from there, I will gather them, and I will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant him, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. As far as we know, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. Uh, remember, he is in exile. And like Ezra, he had been born in exile. It had been approximately 140 years since Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. It's not unlikely that Nehemiah's grandparents had been born in exile. Just to put things in perspective, 141 years track that back and think through it very well. His grandparents may have even been born in exile. And yet, through the course of their teaching and pointing to and his understanding that there were those who were going back to Jerusalem, uh, he just was, he had that on his mind. God had placed it on his mind. As far as we know, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, but I want you to notice his interest in Zion and in the people of Zion. Pay close attention to that. Nehemiah was looking beyond himself. Remember, he is a cupbearer of the king, which carried with it some perks, but also carried with it um, the, the, the possibility of some bad things happening. But at least he was living in the royal dwelling place. He was attending the table of the king. And in most days, those kings, they took care of their people well, even the ones that they were going to use as a guinea pig to test to make sure that their food was okay, that somebody was not poisoning them to kill them and to get them out of the way. And that was Nehemiah's job. But it is clear, as we look on in the text, that he had some concern for Nehemiah, that he paid attention to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was living in a pretty cushy environment. Most of the time when we find ourselves being very well taken care of and things being good for us and we're really comfortable, we seldom begin to look beyond where we are and consider the hardships uh, and the sufferings of others. But one, it makes us feel guilty. And two, our minds are just about getting more. That's the way things happen most of the time, uh, even in our lives. But that's not where Nehemiah was. Notice what he does. When Hananiah comes back, Notice what he does. The very first thing that Nehemiah wants to know is, is he said, I want to know about the people who are in Jerusalem. I want to know about Zion city, and I want to know about Zion's people. I think that says a lot, at least toward our understanding and even beginning to consider if there is a great need. Remember, great needs stir great desires, and then from that comes great work. 
Notice what Nehemiah does. He said, as soon as I heard that these things, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame and the wall of Jerusalem is broken and its gates destroyed by fire. Now we know that the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed and we know that they had been destroyed and burned and been destroyed by fire. These things had been there like that for 141 years. And yet on that day, when Nehemiah heard that report and identified that with the people, notice what he does. I sat down, I wept, and I mourned for days. I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. His heart was turned toward the suffering and struggling of God's covenant people. He knew that the exiles had gone back. He knew what their mission was. He knew what they had, what, what they had been called to do. And he probably had had reports before on how things were regarding the temple worship. But on that day when he put in perspective, when all of that came about and he put that in perspective as it applied to God's people and as it connected with who God is and what his purposes are, it drove him to a place to where for days, we don't know how many days, we just know for days he went, got by himself seemingly because he said, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. I wept and I mourned for days. As we consider taking care of the covenant people here, even in the life of Oak Valley, and those that God will bring to us, I would challenge us to look beyond ourselves, look beyond the things that are, are, are occupying our minds and our times that are not pertaining to caring for the covenant people. And as we give consideration to the ruined world that we live in, until we become people who look beyond ourselves and are concerned. I'm not talking about being critical. I'm talking about being concerned to the point of wanting to see the church make a difference in the community and in the world. Then great work will not take place. And consequently, our desires will not be great in that area either. That isn't condemning, it's just truthful. We have to look beyond ourselves. And the people who seek after God will. That will be their focus. The people who are seeking after God to know Him will come to know Him through their, His Word. Come to know Him and the Spirit of God well up inside of them that they will be driven and passionate not using Nehemiah here as an example, but just to look at the grace of God in his life to bring him to that place. It's huge. Notice that he goes to God in prayer. Why? Because God's work is attended by God first and then by others who seek him. So Nehemiah had this. He comes and he prays before God. And, and we've already noticed his passion. Notice his passion. He said, O oh Lord God of heaven, 
compassionate enough that he is in a place to where he secludes himself for days and weeps and mourns and then turns to God because he knows that this is God's work and that God attends his work first. And he is here seeking God, coming together to find out God's direction for what is to take place next. It's clear here that there is on Nehemiah's heart an intent to do something. I wonder today, what is it that we intend to do? For those of us who are believers, those of us who are in the life of this church or so, some church, what is it that we intend to do? What is it that is, what is, it that is driving us in the way of seeing the work of God fulfilled, the work of the church fulfilled. Notice when Nehemiah prays, I was just this was just interesting to me because we have we often teach in our children and we refer to the Acts model of prayer, a pattern for praying. Notice what he does here as he prays. He says, O Lord God of heaven. The what? The great and awesome God. He's looking to God in the midst of his, his heaviness. He's looking to God, adoring him, acknowledging who he is. Uh, I hope you caught that this morning as Adam led us in our, uh, in our call to worship. We all came in here in different places, carrying different things. That would have been true if we were a thousand. It's true if there are a handful of us, if there's 25 or 30 of us or 40 or 50. We come in here from different places and we cannot figure out the heavy, heavy, heavy things in life. We live in the midst of it, but we don't have the answers for the whys. We don't. And we know about God and that is the constant in our life. And that's what he is saying. They are in ruin they are in shame, they are threatened, and their situation is critical. And it is critical because they don't have the defenses of the wall to protect them, but there is way more to it than that. And they are threatened, I don't have a mind for all of that, God, but you are awesome, and you are great, and you are the God. So what did we do this morning? We turned and we were reminded that God is holy. That is the constant. That's true of us today. That's true of me and you today. He is the constant. And then notice that he confesses his sin and confesses the sin of the people. And he identifies with the people in the same way that Ezra identified with the people. The same way that Isaiah identifies with the people. Why? Because when he get in the presence of an awesome God, a holy God, then I, I, we are just exposed and we are laid bare and he was. And then he makes his request. The point is here, again, is that God's work is attended by God first and then by those who seek God. And so Nehemiah has this thing in the proper order. He has it in the proper order. I want to 
make mention here and it is on our calendar and will be but beginning February in fact somewhere about 80 days from now we will set aside a time as we do during that time of the year but we're not doing it just to do it we'll set aside a time of praying and fasting why? because we want to be seeking God so that we can have our desire stirred so that we can, as a part of the church, see great work done and accomplish what God has set out to accomplish. Plan for that. Prepare for it even now. To think ahead to February. It's that important. We said that the glory of Christ is seen in his work of bringing people to God. I want you to look in chapter 2. Nehemiah gets into the presence of Artaxerxes. 13 years after Artaxerxes, by the way, sends Ezra. So it's 13 years later. Um... So 13 years later, he's back. He's in the presence of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes notices that he is, uh, he's not, he, he is not his usual chipper self, that there is something that is heavy on his heart. Just like you and I, when we know each other, we can look at one another and we can say, your heart is heavy. What's going on? Look at the eyes. Your heart's heavy. What's going on? Well, that's what happened. And so Nehemiah told him what was going on. And, and it, to kind of paraphrase, well, what can I do for you? Well, this is what we need. And he gets, he gets, he gets what he needs. I thought it was interesting. Look in verse 9, chapter 2. And then I came uh, to the governors of the province. Now, this is after he's been in the presence of the king. He gets authority from the king to go. He gets the letters from the king. He gets the timber. He gets everything that he needs to build the gates. Uh, he gets all the supplies that he needs to get this project underway. And then in verse 9, And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, and then he begins to get this resistance, but then Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite uh, servant heard this, and it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days, and then I rose in the night, and I had a few men with me. And I want you to hear this for just a minute, and I was thinking about this uh, read a little piece on it, got away from it, came back, but I really did, I see so much parallel there that here is one God is sending Nehemiah. He is on commission from God because God has stirred his heart. He'd been in the presence of God. But here's how it's working out. He's being sent not just with the authority of God, God's authority is working through Artaxerxes and he is being sent by the authority of a king with everything he needs to go to, a, to God's people, to a, ruin, to a ruined city 
one that is in threat, one that is in great need of him. He arrives with the letters and the authority of the king and everything that he needs to take care of what needs to be done. And after three days, he gets up, he rises up, and he does what? He accomplishes the work that God intended him to accomplish. I think we have to be careful when we're in the Old Testament to make too many parallels. It's just too close. Looks too much like Jesus, doesn't it? That he comes from heaven by the authority of the great king. He comes to do what? He comes to deliver a ruined people and to bring salvation. And notice what it says. When he got there, there was Sanballat and there was Tobiah. And it displeased them greatly, their leaders, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Remember, Jesus came uh, and it displeased the religious rulers because someone had come to give consideration and care for the people of Israel. And yet it is in the midst of that that the glory of Christ is seen because the only way that Israel was going to be saved is if Christ came with the authority of the king, with everything that he needed because he is God in his righteousness and in his holiness, everything that would be needed to do what? To deliver the people of Israel. The glory of Christ is seen in that. It's the only way that they could get to God. Here's what I want us to see and to understand. That God has given the church the only thing that will deliver them into the presence of God. He's given us God's word. He's given us the gospel. He's given us the spirit of God. He's given us one another. And it is only in the church that that is held. And it is only in the church and from the church that that can go out to a lost world. That's the whole thing. You see? It's another picture of the fact that we are in union with Christ. We are in Him. He is in us. God's mission is our mission. Our life then is to be, as we sang earlier, a, 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 debt, a, a debt of love I owe. So what do I do? I give my life away. Give it away. Give it away to what? Give it away to the one who is given to me because I am in union with him and we are in union with him. And it is in that, just as it was here in Nehemiah, that he is now sent to do what? To look a whole lot like Christ and to do the work that God has called him to do. Look in chapter 3. I'm going to read it one time, and if you haven't read chapter 3 lately, you read it, you're going to hear this over and over and over again. Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. But kind of back back up. Man, didn't want to bypass this. In verse 18, Nehemiah, after he's confronted with all this, after he goes out, after he surveys 
what needs to be done. In fact, if you'll read that, you will find that things are so bad and that the situation is so bad with the wall and the conditions, which was a reflection of how bad it was for the people, that he couldn't even navigate it on a mule. Had to get off. The mule couldn't navigate it. Now just remember, they ride mules and donkeys around mountain passes. You can go out west and do that now. They'll walk in little narrow paths where you don't even want to walk. Things were so bad that he had to get off and go through the rubble and all that was going on. And then he comes back and he says, and you see the trouble we're in in verse 17, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also that the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let's rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for good work. In chapter 3 and verse 1, the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate and they consecrated it. Set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zachar the son of Emery built, and it's on and on and on, and next to them, and next to him, and next to them, and next to him, next to them, and next to him. Until, go to the end of chapter 3, until they had come full circle, in verse 32, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired it. Full circle, side by side, in 52 days, working side by side, we'll find side by side, next to them, next to them, next to them. I spent a good bit of time this past week thinking about that in relation to our work here, that we work side by side. It's the only way that we're going to accomplish the work that God has for us is to work side by side, never ending. Each one doing what he or she can, coming together. That is how God's work will be complete. But I want you to notice that they started at the sheep gate. Um, take your Bibles and turn to John's gospel. Right. I think it's right. Turn to John. Yep, John chapter 5. When I saw they started the sheep gate, I wondered if there was any significance in that. Um, just so that you know, that is the gate that they brought the sheep into the city. That was the gate. That was the path and passage where they brought the sheep into the city. What did they bring sheep into the city of Jerusalem for? Sacrifices. They started there. But notice what else gathers around at the sheep gate. John chapter 5 and verse 1, and after this there was a feast of the Jews in the Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, where? 
by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has four, five roof colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So not only did the sheep come through that gate, but there was a place there where all the suffering and hurting many would gather there at that pool. Notice what happens there. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, uh, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. They began at the gate where the sheep would come in and began at a gate where it is that people would come in and ultimately find Jesus and be healed. Why is that important? It points again to the very fact that what Nehemiah is building here is building people. What God is doing, God is working in the midst of his covenant people to raise them up. And that sheep gate and all the other gates serve as a looking toward how were they going to get into the city of Zion to get to who? To get to the temple, to get to God. That was the reason why when they came back, they started with the altar and the temple. And now they were working to build people so that they could get them to God. And how were they doing it? They were doing it side by side. Jesus alone is the way to the Father. We as the church alone have that message of how do we help people get to God? How do we bring them to God? Turn, if you will, when you get chapter 4. So they worked side by side. They did it under resistance. Notice verse 1, when Sanballat heard, in chapter 4, and when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry, greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria. So he comes now packing an army, okay? He comes packing an army. He's loaded. Uh, he's got his gun loaded. He's loaded for bear here. He said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish burn and, and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, they'll break down their stone wall. And notice what Nehemiah says. He says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not 
cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together at half its height for the people had a mind to work. Had a mind to work even in the midst of resistance. We've talked about this before, but I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. We continue the work in spite of the resistance. Knowing what? Knowing that this is God's work. Nehemiah was not afraid and he did not fear man more than he feared God. Notice in verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of those men. Do what? What does it say? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your home. And then when our enemy heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall and we began to work. They had a mindset to work to accomplish the work that God had called them to accomplish. In chapter 5, what we hear is, is that there were struggles with them and resistance to them in the way of taxation. In fact, many of them had even had to, because they were not able to work, they were working on the wall, they were running out of food. Some of them had even had to, because of the taxes and stuff, had even had to sell their children into slavery to continue with this work. Personal sacrifice. Nehemiah was angry over that. And he set out and he made corrective measures to that. But then notice in verse 14, talking about Nehemiah's own personal sacrifice, he said, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor, in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver and even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so. Nehemiah is not pointing to the fact of his own righteousness. What he was saying to the people, is that you are suffering and I am also sacrificing and we will sacrifice together. How important is that? That we sacrifice together? What did Christ do? Turn over to Philippians chapter 2 and we'll see how he sacrificed. We've had an opportunity here in the last few weeks to look at this Closely. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is ours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Hear the, hear the, the, the sacrifice that's taking place here. But emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
Why mention these things? Is that we have been given the opportunity to be a part of a great work. It's tremendous. There's nothing like it. And it is a work that in the end will be complete even if we don't do it. But why would we, in light of who Christ is, with what he has done for us, why would we not want to, every one of us, personally be committed for life to go all the way to the end with this work? To sacrifice, to set aside our fear of man, to partner shoulder by shoulder, day after day and week after week, either till the Lord comes or until he calls us home and just not stop and just keep going because of who he is and what he has done. I want to close with this. Those of you who are Narnia fans, you'll recall uh, Reepicheep. You remember, remember who he was? You remember? Yeah, he was the chief mouse. C.S. Lewis described him in this way. He said he's the self-appointed, humble servant to Prince Caspian and perhaps the most valiant knight in all of Narnia. Uh, his chivalry is unsurpassed as also his courage and his skill with the sword. Ripachip is uh, chivalrous and courageous because more than anything, more than even his own life. In Narnia, we recognized that he loves Aslan and Aslan's prince more than his own life. Uh, valiantly fighting uh, in a, a battle for Prince Caspian, Ripachip is almost killed. And he would have died were it not for Lucy's ability to heal with the drops from her diamond bottle. Uh, practically raised from the dead, Ripachip leaps to his feet and bows before the lion Aslan, only to realize that he's lost his tail in the battle. And then Ripachip pleaded with Aslan to restore his tail. And as Aslan discusses with Ripachip whether he thinks too highly of his own honor represented by his tail, Aslan sees that Ripachip's fellow mice, uh, he saw what they were doing. And then he says this, Aslan, he said, why have your followers drawn their swords, may I ask? Um, and the second mouse says this, may it please your high majesty, and this second mouse's name was Peepacheep, okay, he says, may it please your high majesty, we're all waiting to cut off our own tails if our chief must go without his. We'll not bear the shame of wearing an honor which is denied to the high mouse. And Aslan says, you've conquered me. You have great hearts, not for the sake of your dignity, uh, Reepicheep, but for the love that is between you and your people uh, you have your tail again. And Ripachip's comrades loved him because the mouse was more valiant than most men and his great aim was 
to love Ashlyn and serve him. I thought about that as I read it, um, identified with it in hopes that each of us would be such that our love for the Lord Jesus would be so great that we would sacrifice any and everything in this life to work in his work, to take care of one another, to see the mission and the purpose of the church as is given to us in Scripture complete. And I look forward to that being complete here in the life of Oak Valley if the Lord returns while we're here working. But even beyond that, if the Lord tarries, and as he takes each one of us, that we will have worked just that way all the way to the end. All the way to the end.